0: If you have a Bible, open to Romans chapter 14, either on uh, digitally or analog. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the text up on the screen for you so that you can follow along with us. If you don't own a Bible at all, we would love to outfit you with one. And at the close of the service, you can go over to the comments and uh, you can talk to Aaron or one of the staff over there in the commons, and they'll make sure that they get one for you. Romans chapter 14, in the section that we're going to be in today is verse 13 through 22. This is a continuation of what Tim taught last week, so if you missed last week, you haven't seen it, I I would encourage you to go to redemptionaz.com, select the Gilbert Congregation. You'll be able to track with uh, last week's message or any message uh, from this series or series that we've done. You could kind of catch up and uh, see what you might have missed. But Romans chapter 14, verse 13, let's read, and then we'll, we'll pray and work through this text together. Therefore... Verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this passage this morning. Father God, we love you. God, I thank you um, for the opportunity you've given us together this morning to proclaim the greatest news to ever hit planet earth, and that we can be put back together with God in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our sin, in spite of our offenses against a holy God. So this morning, our hearts are full because we're so thankful for Jesus. God, we just pray that as we work through this text this morning, God, that you would stir our affection for you, and God, that out of that overflow, we would love one another more than we love ourselves. God, I personally just pray for help. I pray, God, that you would limit any distractions that I might create in this moment. Um, God, I pray that you would give me the gift of preaching and anointing by your spirit, and God, ultimately, humility that comes by way of the cross of Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Starting in Romans chapter 12, and if you've been with us just through 12 and 13 and, and now 14, we keep kind of going back to Romans 12, but Paul begins to describe a life of love that transforms our relationships with ourselves, that transforms our relationship with other Christians, and it transforms our relationships with the world, both our friends and enemies. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, he says, let your love... Be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing honor. And from kind of the the collection of verses in in Romans 12, Paul kind of reaches into this moment, and in chapter 14, he has the opportunity to apply all that he's been saying to a very specific issue uh, within this congregation in Rome. Romans chapter 14 is a call to all Christians, but especially the strong. And when I say the strong, I mean the more mature those who are uh, biblically in tune, connected to Jesus. It's, it's a call for them to love each other. In the previous section, Tim, caught, Tim taught last week, we saw the command to stop judging each other. And the issue changes slightly because Paul's instructing us to not cause another to stumble but limit our liberty or our freedom that we have as Christians so that we might not lead the weaker or the more immature brother or sister into doing things that they feel are wrong. In other words, there are some Christians that believe it's wrong for them to eat certain things, and others believe that it is okay or right for them to eat certain things. And the question that's being kind of asked here of this congregation, the question presented to us this morning, is how do we best love each other in that situation and it is a sense, uh, a continuation of thoughts from Romans chapter 12 and 13, and, but now practical instruction on what Christian love looks like in this world. And, and the question here is not whether or not we have particular freedoms, but the question is, how do I best love my brother or sister with the freedoms that I have as a follower of Jesus? In verse 13, Paul says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. The, the point is here that there are some judgments that we are required to make, but the focus of our judgments isn't to be on others, it's to be on ourselves. And he continues the thought in verse 14. He says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So in verse 14, Paul states an assumption that helps us to explain why this is such a big issue. Things are not intrinsically unclean. That's not a denial of physical dirtiness, and it doesn't regard a need for basic sanitation. But what it means is that God created all things, and the scripture tells us that he did a very good job at it. Things are not intrinsically bad. It's what we do with them and the meaning that we assign to them that is bad. What Paul says in verse 14, he says it again in verse 20 in this section as well, would sound completely ridiculous to someone who was raised, like Paul was, as an Orthodox Jew. Because Old Testament ceremonial laws had specific indicators of what foods were clean and what foods were unclean. In fact, Leviticus chapter 11 has a long list of foods that are prohibited and permitted by the Jews. And these were all part of of an Old Testament system regulations that that qualified or disqualified you as fit for worship in the temple or tabernacle. But in Romans chapter 14, in this verse here, Paul overturns an entire teaching with two phrases. He says, everything is indeed clean. And he says, nothing is unclean in itself. Now, hear hear me on this. This is really important. Paul is not saying that everything is allowed. But what he's saying is that things in and of themselves are not unclean. It's what you do with those things that either involves a way of sin or a way of righteousness. And neither is Paul denying the inherent sinfulness of some actions because there are some actions that are clearly prohibited and forbidden in the scriptures. But That's not exactly the subject that he's talking about here. What Paul is talking about is the use of our Christian liberty or our freedoms as followers of Jesus and the problem that some people have with guilt, even when no wrongdoing is involved. In themselves, all foods are clean, but Paul would not say that nothing is at stake when you eat or how you eat or drink what is clean. And here's why. Because the clean food becomes unclean for me if I think it is unclean when I eat it or if I eat or drink it in the presence of those who believe it to be unclean. Paul's dealing with a perceived uncleanness that folks in this congregation had And he's addressing those who don't yet realize that all things are clean, but they see other Christians partaking of it, and and then they partake of it themselves, even though they still think it to be morally wrong. And what Paul says is when you partake in what you believe to be wrong, that partaking is now an act of sin. Not necessarily because the action itself, because the eating or drinking was wrong, but because your attitude was a sinful attitude that you wanted to partake or you wanted to participate more than you desired the righteousness of God. And then verse 15 comes in. I think verse 15 is kind of the hinge point, the pivot point for the whole discussion here uh, on on our liberty. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved or distressed by what you eat... And if you're an underliner, highlighter, note-taker person, this next line here, you are no longer walking in love. He says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. So two principles that Paul lays out as qualifiers for your liberty, for the use of your liberty and freedom. Are you walking in love, and are you not destroying your brother or sister, the one for whom Christ has died? Because food and drink don't really matter much in the grand scheme of things, but what is important, what is important to the Christian is am I walking in love and am I building people up instead of destroying them? In in verse 15, Paul's saying that the the mature Christian, the strong Christian, again, the, the person who's spiritually in tune, close to Jesus, listening to God, must not do something that grieves or distresses the weaker brother. Because so often the mature will feel completely justified in proceeding with whatever they do, being convinced that it's not forbidden by God. So they, so they, have the attitude of the strong towards the weak is: look, if you have a problem with it, then that's your problem, because it's okay for me, it's okay with me. So they go on with their practice or attitude, even though that the weak feel it is displeasing, displeasing or offensive to God. What's interesting to notice in this section is that Paul gives the strong or the more mature more criticism than the weak. Even though he tells the strong, look, your position is more biblical, but but here's the, the thing that you're missing. You're not loving. You're not being loving towards the weaker or more immature. Because God intends that love be the primary basis of our fellowship or our interactions with each other. Whenever you deliberately do something that you know offends or grieves a Christian brother or sister, you are not being loving. The most important criteria in relating to others is is not knowledge. It's not how much you know. It's love. It's how much will I love this person? Because knowledge can lead to the arrogant assertion of rights over those that are not as mature. There's an author named Gordon Fee. He calls it the, the tyranny of knowledge. Because in the context of our fellowships and our interactions with one another, some often use knowledge to trump love. And and, and remember, in this context here, Paul's not talking about spiritual disciplines or or things that Christians are called to do, like tithing or witnessing. So if you go out to eat with your buddy and he just will not stop witnessing to the waitress, you know, and that like bums you out when he does that every time, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about things that we are allowed to do. He's also telling them that their unloving behavior destroys the work of God in the lives of others. What does that mean? He says it in verse, in verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. The work that God starts and is doing in the life of every believer, the work of growing people up in Christ... The the strong can slow down the maturation of the weak in regards to their Christ-like character and wisdom. It also refers to the work that God is doing to build up the church and harming relationships within the church that God is building. He also warns them in verse 13 and 21. It says, don't put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a weaker brother that might cause him to fall. He says, by your actions and your insensitivity or your lack of love, you can lead the weaker in temptation to sin. Because it could be that the strong's action could lead the weak to begin to do things that are against their conscience. Verse 23 says that the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats. Why? Because his eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is a sin. This means that the weak or the less mature, they might begin to do things encouraged by the strong or the more mature, but they're not convinced that it's right for them. And if they're not convinced that they are right, then for them to do it, it would be a sin. Okay, so real, real practical, for instance, right? Let's say that someone is convinced that all drinking of alcohol is a sin, but he sees another believer do it, a more mature, a stronger Christian do it. Now, he could easily decide, well, I guess it's okay, because the peer pressure is leading him to drink. But if he does so without thinking it through and being very convinced that it's not contrary to God's will in his life, then that will hurt his conscience, and he'll begin to feel guilty. But now, because he's already been in the context with a stronger believer, a more mature believer, he's going to start ignoring that guilt or that conviction, and he might start to be open to do other things, making concessions and compromises with things that the Scripture clearly says are wrong. Paul says the things that you do, the liberties that you exercise, the freedoms that you exercise, and Tim, this is a big point Tim made last week, they should be thought out through the study of the Scripture through community and conference of other believers until you become fully convinced that it is right for you. And and Paul is saying, look, the eating and drinking of clean things, it should ultimately come out of the overflow of contentment in God and trust and satisfaction and joy and restfulness in God. Because if we're acting out of the overflow of contentment in God, then there wouldn't be any overpowering desire to do something that we probably feel is wrong. We could just relax and rest in the sufficiency and our satisfaction in God. We could say no to things uh, without pressure as well. We could say, I don't want to do that because I don't believe that it's right for me. I don't have a compelling pressure to do that because I'm convinced that God is my portion and my satisfaction. But if we feel pressured to do what we think is wrong and we yield to temptation, what we're saying, in effect, is I need someone else's approval Or I need the physical pleasure so much that I am willing to risk defiling my conscience and do what I believe to be wrong. And Paul says that's not the kind of behavior that comes from faith. And so that behavior is not pure or clean. It's unclean because it's an act of unbelief. It's not an act of love. It's an act of selfishness we're desiring something so much that it communicates that our contentment is God, our contentment in God is not enough. It's faltering, it's weak. Because it says that God is not enough to satisfy us. This is at the center of our our Christian liberty and freedom. The passage is not dealing with whether or not we have freedom, because we do. And it's not even dealing with what we can do with our liberty or freedom. It's talking about when do we use freedom our freedom? When do we exercise our liberty? Because liberty is a good thing. It's a major theme in the scriptures. Read your Bible from start to finish. This, Paul writes to another church at Galatia. He said, for freedom, Christ has set you free. We've been set free from ceremonial observances and animal sacrifices and the eating or not eating of certain foods as a way to bring us to God. So the good news of the gospel is this. Redemption in Christ sets the believer free from trying to earn the approval of God through a system of rules and regulations. That's what we sing about. That's what we celebrate. That's what we preach. That's what we want to live out of, that reality. Salvation is wholly a work of God's grace, God's unmerited and undeserving favor towards rebellious sinners, God at work in our life and on our behalf. And we know that nothing we do or don't do could ever bring us closer to God. Salvation, forgiveness of sin, a right standing of relationship with God have nothing to do with the food on your plate or the drink in your glass. That's, the, that's Christian liberty. That's our freedom. And it extends beyond what you eat and drink. Tim covered that a little bit last week. Christ has liberated you as a, as a son or daughter of the king. Christ has liberated you from the terrible burden of having to prove your worth by keeping a set of rules. That is great news but the New Testament never leaves the matter at that point because that teaching is incomplete. In truth, God has set you free so that you can live a life that honors him. God has set you free so that you can live a life of love. You're completely free to love God with everything you have and to love others more than you love yourself. The freedom that you have is not a freedom so that you can do whatever you want to do. It is a freedom so that you can finally do what you ought to do. And through sanctification, by God's grace, he has this amazing kind of process that takes place in the life of the believer to where what you ought to do actually becomes what you want to do. The best thing about our freedom is the super highway that it creates in our lives for us to enjoy God. And on this highway, for our protection and for our joy, are these guardrails. Early in the year I was in Ethiopia and I did not enjoy driving in Ethiopia or riding in a car, I never drove. Because Ethiopia traffic is like, remember when you're in biology class and they put a drop of blood on the thing and you stare at it and you see all the cells that like barely miss each other drive around? That's what it's like there. Like you could drive as fast as you want. You want 20 people in a sedan? No worries. Put them in there. You want no, no lines in the road, no like kind of lights, just every, however you want to get there. It's whatever you want to do. Not enjoyable. Right? But our freedom has guardrails. For instance, we're not free to sin. The commandments of the Bible still apply to the believer. Christian liberty does not include the right to do what's wrong. And commandments are not bad things. I know we often think of the thou shalt nots as really constricting or in terms of being negative, but these commandments have incredible positive implications. Take the first one, don't have other gods. It means positively, I get the one true and living God. When God says to me, don't have other gods, what he's saying is, you don't have to have other lesser gods and smaller idols that steal and destroy and fail. Every negative commandment in scripture has an amazing, affectionate, positive parallel. I I think of it in terms of my marriage. My wife Lauren, she says to me, Paul, I don't want you to have other wives. I want you to have me as your wife. There are massive positive implications for me in that, in that statement. Having Lauren as a wife is an awesome deal for me. It's okay for her too, but that's been a great, re- I, she introduced me to something called a thread count. That's great. I didn't know that was an option before. But if I pursue other women, That what I'm saying to her is, I don't want you. Or I want you on my terms. And we say the same thing to God when we offer our affection or our pursuit to lesser gods, the things that are contrary to God's prescribed way of living. And so these parameters are good for us. They increase our joy and our enjoyment in and of God. But within those parameters, we also know that there are areas where the Bible does not give a specific command to obey or a principle to follow. And believers are free to make their own decisions, guided by God's wisdom in the scriptures and the leading of the Holy Spirit, and ultimately ruled by the, by the ethic of the greatest commandment, our love of God and our love for our neighbor. That's why in Romans chapter 14, Paul doesn't simply just lay down a long list of do's and don'ts, but he does help to establish a very important principle in our liberty. For some of you, that's really frustrating because you would just prefer the list. You would just like the manual. Just tell me like how far I can go. Just tell me what I can do. So, so how much can I drink? Is it a glass? Is it two glasses? Is it a half a bottle? Is it a bottle? Like, just tell me. Just, would you just lay it out for me? How much can I go? What, what are the gray area kind of tax breaks that I can technically read, honestly, file for? Just like, what, what, how, how much can I? Smudge, you move in there. How, how much do I have to disclose in the business deal and still be a moral Christian businessman? How much nudity in a movie is artistic and how much is obscene? How much can I overspend on my credit card and not be in debt? What about this email, this video that I got that's really funny? It's highly questionable, but it's really funny. Can I forward that? Can I read that? Can I sit under that? That's what you want. You want the the answer to those questions. You want to know how far, what can I get away with? But that thinking doesn't cause you to trust and love God more. What it does is it allows you to live a marginal life bare minimum life as a Jesus follower. And what Paul and the gospel and the scriptures present and what Jesus died for is so much more full and robust than just the bare minimum Christian existence. But the issue is, and this is why we don't like that, because it's also more difficult and messy. Some things are wrong for you that are right for others. And some things are right for you that are wrong for others. And so you can't always know in advance what will be right or wrong for another Christian brother. And it also means that any attempt to construct a set of universally binding rules covering every aspect of life is doomed to failure because of the vagueness of the human conscience. Not everything is black and white. The reality is we live in a world of gray. But Paul helps us navigate this in the rest of our section here. Look at verse 16. Through the end, he says, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Paul says, look, the kingdom of God doesn't have a lot to do with issues of ceremonial cleanliness or what you eat or what you drink, because the kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And sometimes your conscience will tell you, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't watch that. Don't listen to this. And in those cases, the Bible clearly says, follow your conscience. In other words, don't do something you believe to be wrong, even if others are doing it. And that's not to be confused with weakness, because the strong say no when everyone else is saying yes. It's the weak that give in to that pressure. It's also the weak that use their freedom to strong arm others into exercising liberty where they don't feel like they have freedom. So if for you, a glass of wine is okay at dinner, but you're dining with someone that's not okay with it, don't force them or put them on trial or, or for what the Bible clearly calls their faith. Loving others at the expense of yourself, is what truly makes you strong. That's what truly makes you a mature Christian. Loving others at the expense of yourself. Laying your freedoms down for the good of others is a sign of true strength. And here's another thing about truly free people. They reflect and celebrate the giver and the provider of their freedoms more than they do the freedoms itself. The people who are truly free, they celebrate the giver and the provider of their freedom more than they do the fact that they have particular freedoms. It's kind of like the guy who's always trying to tell you how manly he is. It's like, I watched all the UFC. I arm wrestled six people today. I'm a man, the man, man. Like, if you're a man, we get it. We just know. You don't have to tell us. If you're free, we know it. You don't have to just kind of flaunt your freedom or talk about how free you are or just kind of push to the very edge of what your freedom is. And if you had true freedom, the freedom that the Scripture is talking about here, especially unearned, undeserved freedom, it brings a, a sober-mindedness, but it also brings humility. There is a weight on it. And the freedom that the Scripture talks about always, always pushes you towards self-sacrificing love, never towards selfishness. What this passage shows us is that what matters in Christian behavior is not just doing certain things or not doing certain things. What matters is whether we act in love and act from faith. The question is always, what does your behavior say about your heart? That's always the question. What does your behavior say about your heart? Does it say that your heart is resting in God as your portion, as your prize, as your satisfaction, as your sufficiency? Or do your actions show that you're now treasuring a behavior that you disapprove of more than you treasure God? Because that's what sin is. That's what sin is. Paul tells us if we don't consider another's conscience and encourage them to act against it, then we destroy the work of God in their life. Strong language from Paul to the church. And not in a way that causes them to lose their salvation but in a way that nurtures a hardness of heart, and if it's left unchecked by repentance, it leads to ruin and destruction. Paul wrote a letter to a young man named Timothy, a young pastor, and he says to him, look, you need to hold faith and good conscience because by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. In other words, by rejecting a good conscience and acting against what you know to be right, which is to act in unbelief according to the Bible, you can destroy yourself. And Paul says, don't do that to each other. Don't act like that towards each other. Don't judge and don't despise and don't put a stumbling block or obstacle in anyone's journey as they're trying to take next steps with Jesus. He says, help each other in faith, not against it. Love each other this way. There's a, there's a story I want to tell that I think, I hope, helps to illustrate this. I need some help. Aaron, I think, is going to come up and help me with this. So once upon a time, um, I, I worked in sales. I've had, had several sales jobs. And I, at one... Um, kind of interaction, one sale that I was on, I was sitting across the table from this husband and wife, and I was really laying it on, and the guy knew that it was overpriced, not what they needed or really wanted, um, but the wife was, like, all over it. She wanted it. She wanted it so bad, and so I, she was just kind of really interested. I mean, she wanted to buy, she wanted to buy, she wanted to buy, and on the table, the guy had his, his wallet or folded or checkbook, I don't remember, and, and he's sitting there, and he's sitting across the table, and he's holding his wife's hand hand, and I said to him, hey man, pick up, your, pick up your wallet with your other hand. So he picks up his wallet, and he's holding his wallet here, and he's holding his wife's hand here, and I said, which one feels better to you? <laughs> hey, he bought it, so <clears throat> that, that's slimy, but you're free to use that. Just don't tell anybody you got it at church. Um, I have, uh, this is my friend Aaron. Aaron is on staff here, And uh, I have over here a cheap bottle of wine and a steak. And I got my friend Aaron, (laughs) the one for whom Christ died. Every time you exercise your liberty and your freedom, you're making these kinds of decisions. Which one feels better? Which one is right? This little food, little drink, or the one for whom Christ died? Thanks, man. What Paul is trying to get us to do in this passage, what the scripture is trying to lead us to do, is to make us stronger, make us more mature Christians, to ask really important questions with our liberty and with our freedom. Like, is your freedom worth all of that to you? Do you really have to have your way, even if it has a negative impact on others? Is your desire, in your freedom, in exercising your freedom, is your desire for you greater than what's good for the kingdom of God? There's some questions and some principles. I just want to apply, and then then we're done here. Kind of so what's. And the the first set of questions, if you're taking notes, you want to write stuff down. These might be just good questions to, to write down, probably to work through in your small group, your redemption community. The first question that you would ask kind of regarding your own freedom or liberty would be, can I exercise liberty or can I exercise freedom in this behavior or attitude with thanksgiving and praise and honor to God? Be honest about that. When you're setting forth into doing whatever it is that you've set your mind to do, you're exercising your liberty. Can I go through with this? Can I do this? Can I either it is eat or drink or whatever behavior or attitude or opinion you have? Can I receive it in thanksgiving, love, and praise to God? Is this going to honor God? My use of freedom and liberty, will this honor God? The second question is, what I'm doing, am I doing it for the good of my brother? Am I exercising my freedom and liberty for the good of my brother or sister? Are you making decisions based on the value of your liberty or your rights or based on what is best or loving for your brother or sister? Because our motivation in freedom is not just to assert our right because we can do something. Because every time you push your rights, you push your liberty, you push your freedom on someone else, it's a sin against Christ himself in the body of believers. And then the last question to kind of ask when you're considering your freedom is how do I, how do I know what's loving towards my brother or sister? How do I know what's loving towards them? I'm glad you asked. Community, one another's, relationship. Here at this church, we have small groups. We call them Redemption Community. It's our vehicle for you to have connection and one another's with one another. If you don't have some kind of circle, if you don't have people that are in your life, if you don't have a place, you you won't know. If you live isolated, you can't know how to love others. That's why we always tell you, get connected, get connected, get connected. If, If you're here and you're in the camp where you say, okay, well, I view it as unclean. If that's you, there's some principles that this passage lays out for you. The first is keep your views to yourself. Verse 22 talks about that. Keep your views to yourself as you start to kind of develop them. The second would be in verse 17, grow your view of the kingdom of God. Continue to look at what God has created, what God has called good, what God has called clean. Continue to grow your view of the kingdom of God. Grow in the maturity of your convictions of what's right and what's wrong. Spend time in, in, in God's word. Spend time with the council and conference, a community of others, um, time dedicated in prayer, the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. You could arrive at the same place, but at least you've spent time growing in your maturity of those convictions. And, and lastly, and probably most importantly, until you are convinced that something is right, avoid it. Until you are convinced that something is right, avoid it. If you're in the camp and you say, well, I think it's clean. I think it's, I, I, I say it, it's clean the first thing that you need to do is accept the different view. (laughs) Accept those who have a differing view of yours. Seek to respectfully and lovingly engage with those who have differing views. Sacrifice your liberty and your freedom for the good of your brother or sister. Kind of with that, refrain from anything that might make a weaker brother or sister stumble. Refrain from anything that might make a weaker brother or sister stumble. Because what Paul, this section Paul calls us, not just merely doctrinal correctness, but for us to love others in a way that puts the needs of others our own. Our our example and our motivation for all of this is Jesus. Because Christ gave up his life to save your brother and your sister. Can you not give up a little freedom to join Christ in saving him instead of destroying him? Christ sacrificed his blood to bring them to God, to have them take their next step to closer to God. Will you not sacrifice a little food and a little drink to join Christ in bringing them to God? Jesus Christ, on his cross, surrendered infinite freedoms and infinite rights to die for you and for your brothers and sisters. Will you not surrender your little freedom with food and your little rights with drink in order to join Christ and bringing them to God. And I'm not saying that whether or not your brother or sister makes it to heaven depends on you. It's, it's like this. Christ died to purchase the means of salvation and sanctification and to make them effective. The cross of Christ purchased and make them effective. Christ died to make your love for one another effective in helping the weak persevere. Christ died for your brother and sister. Your love in their life is blood bought. Do you see and are you sensing the magnitude of the decisions that you make with your freedom? You have the opportunity to love and build up or to destroy. Your sacrifice of freedom for their conscience sake is blood-bought. Love them and work out the effectiveness of the cross in saving them. Every time you make a sacrifice of love for a brother or sister, you are working out and proclaiming and celebrating and honoring and making much of the effectiveness of the cross of Jesus Christ in their life and in your life. Let's pray. Father God, we do, we love you, we love you, and God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came and lived a life that we could never live. We thank you for the death that he has died on the cross once and for all, conquering Satan, sin, and death, providing a sacrifice, providing a means of payment that we could never muster up, and ultimately purchasing for us our freedom, our freedom from trying to perform as if we could earn your approval. And God, purchasing for us a freedom to enjoy you and to love you and to love others for all time. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray.